Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Joining me today is Court Jeske, Executive Vice President of the United Soccer League. His resume boasts over 20 years of experience with U.S. soccer, Major League Soccer, USA Rugby. There's a long list of them. He even helped build the Nashville uh, Soccer Club as CEO. And so with that, I'm very excited to have a former colleague and friend join us on Full Contact CEO. Welcome, Court. Thanks for joining us. Alex and listeners, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you having me on. We're going to do a quick warm-up. I'm just going to say a word and you say the first thing that comes to mind, okay? You got cool. it. Let's do it. Let's yeah. Go. Lincoln Riley. Tough couple days. That, that's a few words, but uh, I'll, let's go phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Boomer. Sooner. USL. Rise. Relegation. Not happening. VAR. Tough. MLS. Awesome. MLR. Growing. The future. All of us. Awesome. That's so so great. So you, you obviously went to Oklahoma and you've, you've had a fantastic career as a sports executive, sports entertainment executive. How did you get to Oklahoma? Give us the quick bio. Yeah, quick bio. I was I was raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. A uh, fantastic, fantastic city. And, and home for many good rugby players have come through from Tulsa. Many, many rugby players. I can remember growing up in the 80s, the uh, the rugby team would play right on Riverside Drive. There's there's a sneaky group of expats in, in Tulsa, international people, because of the oil and gas business. And so I think it was probably mostly populated with expats and people that had played all over the globe. But it changed a lot now, as, as you know. And, and last time I checked, I think there was about 10 high schools that had rugby in the, uh, in the metropolitan area of about 1 million people. So it was a great place to grow up, great, great place to, to live. And I uh, went to college at the University of Oklahoma and started as an intern in the athletic department for the University of Oklahoma. Actually, the current athletic director, Joe Castiglione, was uh, kind enough to answer my third email asking if I could volunteer in the athletic department. And that got me started. A volunteer job evolved into a, a part-time job to, to a semi-full-time job, a job selling tickets with the Kansas City Wizards, U.S. soccer. Did US. you know your whole life that you wanted to be in sports entertainment? Uh, starting about, about my sophomore year of, of, of college, I thought for a while that I might want to be in the healthcare industry. Both of my parents were in the healthcare industry and I spent a summer working in a hospital and just thought, you know, there's a lot of great that happens at a hospital, but there's also some sadness to be fair. And and maybe I wanted to be, uh, sports had always been a passion of mine, playing or, you know, participating in it in high school in any ways at the high school level or with my club and soccer. And so I thought if I could do something that I'm truly passionate about, that would be a phenomenal career. And, and 20 years later, I have to say, I've, I've got a long way to go in my career, but I feel like I've been rewarded every step of the way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wizards, what, who are the Wizards, the Kansas City Wizards? Kansas City Wizards, an original MLS team before they changed their name to Sporting Kansas City in 2010. Okay. I think that made that change, but... Was that a Lamar Hunt team or who owned that? That was team? one of the three Lamar Hunt teams. Yeah. Uh, I did have the pleasure of, of meeting Lamar Hunt a couple times and um, very impressed, even as a entry-level ticket sales 
uh, executive, as we were called. You know, Lamar remembered my name the second time he saw me. And that left, left an impression of how ownership and leadership in sports in this country. But I'll tell you a quick, funny story. So we were playing at Arrowhead Stadium. I think at the time it had 82,000 seats. We were announcing three, four, five, seven thousand people a game, but there was less than that in the stands. Yeah. yeah. You can you can imagine the atmosphere, but I, I thought, you know, I got my my three days of ticket sales prep and I was ready to conquer the world. Said, you know, I've got this. I'm I'm calling corporations in Kansas City. I'm all about international sports and soccer, and I'm gonna I'm gonna change the game. I was 22 and fired up. And the first person I called, I said, my name is Cord. I'm with, with the Wizards, and I'd like to get you out to the game. And he said, I don't like hockey. And so I, I thought pretty quick response. I said, well, that's great because we're a soccer team. And then the next thing I heard was a click. <laughs> um, so it was a quick in, indoctrination into building professional sports in this country, especially sports sports that are not mainstream is a slog and that goes for soccer and it goes for rugby that you've got to you've got to earn your stripes as they say but it was a fantastic year in in Kansas City learning a lot learning a lot yeah what what you see with a lot of really well accomplished sports executives is they spent a lot of time they spent time selling tickets and learning that grind that very transactional one fan at a time a hundred calls a day constantly being said no to, but finding a way to continue to build and grow a portfolio. So many, so many have come through, come, come through that, that process. So you're at the Wizards and then, and then what happened? Well, after a year, Alex, I decided, you know what, enough selling tickets. <laughs> I can probably, Nobody probably ink this yeah. by, but I've heard no enough. Um, and, and learn how to, to your point, you, you learn how to deflect a no and, and get people talking and hopefully turn that into a yes which I think can benefit you the rest of your career. But the theme in my career I've always found is you do good work and, and people have recommendations that, that get you other jobs, especially as you move up the ladder. So my boss at, at Oklahoma actually knew someone at the Chiefs and Wizards that, that helped get me at the front of the line for that job. And then our general manager at the Wizards is a guy named Kurt Johnson, now works for North Carolina FC as their their CEO. But he got me was able to get me in front of the people at U.S. Soccer at the Federation in Chicago. And so I, I had the chance to go up there and work for them for a year and a half and uh, experience post-2002 World Cup success on the men's side uh, and what that did for their business. And then really experience a, an absolute fervor for the women's side. That was the days of Mia Hamm and Brandy Chastain and Christine Lilly and all, all the stars that, that are more or less household names, certainly for those of us in, in soccer, sports of interest. Yeah. And, and it was just great to see even at an early, relatively early time in, in, in the history of the sport in this country, an absolute passion for women's soccer and, and experience that. So it, it was a great time at the Federation. You learned a lot. I did everything from carrying and icing down drinks to, to getting to put, put together marketing plans for, for, for major events like U.S. Mexico at NFL venues. So really, really enjoyed my time. And still a lot of the people at the Federation are there today that, that has, has benefited me throughout the years. Tickets and then going into event management and learning. And then how'd you get into USA Rugby from there? Yeah, so I, I, I then went to grad school. I lived in Europe for a year. And that was my my real first introduction to rugby, other than the, the people I had driven by on the Riverside Park in Tulsa, was I had the chance to live in Leicester. And so got to go to three or four Leicester Tigers games. 
passion. passion in the Midlands, the East Midlands for rugby. And, and Alex, remember 2003 just happened to be the year of the Rugby World Cup in England. So I'm, I'm 25 years old. I'm living in England. I'm in grad school. I don't have much money, but there is a whole, lot, a whole lot of morning pub sessions that we figured out how to make happen on the week. And then playing lots of, of pickup rugby, which to me at that time was no different than, you know, backyard football growing up in Oklahoma, but getting to play some on, on the quote unquote playgrounds and then watching Martin Johnson and the Leicester Tiger local hero guide the country to uh, a World Cup victory was was an impression that I'll never forget. And it was great to see the event through that lens in that time, right? I think, you know, it was still coming out of the amateur phases in, in, in certain parts, but yeah. the whole country, we were actually in London, I'll, I'll never forget for the semifinals. And it was just, you know, wall to wall at every bar and pub, everyone wearing red and white to watch, watch England play. And so I came back from graduate school and, and was looking for some, you know, some work to pay off some, some loans. And sure enough, I got the opportunity to, to join the folks at USA Rugby in Boulder at the time. Was Doug the CEO? Doug Arnott was the CEO. Yep. And, uh, a woman yeah. named Susan Jones actually hired me. And again, it was, it was a connection. I had worked quite a few events at, at, at the time it was called the Home Depot Center in LA and that's where they were having the sevens tournament. That's right. I was playing in that. Yeah. With the US. Don't, don't date us too much, but, uh, yeah, come on. Uh, although we both have our three decades ago, but, um, yeah, no, had, had the opportunity to work there. And, and again, I'll, I'll go back. If there's any young aspiring sports business people or just in any industry, you do good work. People remember it and, and, and will recommend you. So when that short stint was over working for, USA are the sevens, they, they found a way to keep me on. And then over the course of four years, I, I went through, I guess, three different CEOs with Steve Griffiths, a second after Doug, and then ultimately Nigel, who was there for some time and, and got the chance to really build out a, a commercial platform in a way that we hadn't seen before. And I think Nigel saw the vision and what I tried to bring was what I'd seen at US soccer. Right? How do they treat their national team? How do we have events? Because I remember some of our first national team games I worked out at Stan, we were literally letting people in the door for, for $5 or a can of food donation type thing. Right. And, and, and right. you know, the Eagles deserve more than that. And so we started putting them in Chicago at Toyota Park and different, th yeah. this all, this all, you know, synced up well True. with, with a building frenzy and MLS. We hosted Ireland in 2006, right? And Santa we hosted Clara. Ireland and Santa Clara. We had the we had the Churchill Cup, which which had you know commercial right. success in different ways in different places. We had Munster come over for for friendly in Chicago, Hartford. Yeah, so it it all yeah. it was it was really fortunate timing to to be at USA Rugby at, a, at an inflection point. And again, we we had one of felt fortunate to have the experience with with the U.S. Soccer Federation of how to run these kind of events and put field boards out and, and get broadcast deals done and then try to take it to another level. And, and gosh, I mean, you, you can only look at the last five, seven years and, and the games I've had at NFL stadiums with the All Blacks and others to see they've taken it to a whole nother commercial level, which is great to see. Right. So speaking of rugby, what's your take on, you know, you're, you're intimately involved a decade, decade and a half ago, and now looking back your experience we'll get to kind of usl and soccer but looking back on where rugby has gone where it hasn't gone like what's your overall take oh it's a great question i i think what 
it has seen, and this is from a, let's call it an educated insider outsider, right? I've not been intimately involved since I left in yeah. 2009. I think it has seen incremental growth every year. And, and that's not, I don't want any of the listeners to take that as a, as a negative. I think incremental growth every year can, can add up to significant growth over a decade. Right. And, and it's hard to make compound. Yes, exactly. And it's hard to make exponential leaps without really inflection points. Right. And so I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about the women's world cup and the men's world cup coming to the U S and what that can do. But there's been these other, other points along the way that it really does remind me of where soccer was in the eighties when it was still a bit of a, a niche sport, certainly the national team yeah. attendance was very niche. They even had volunteers at the Federation running some of the matches. And look, there still is some, at least my point of view from the outside, is there's still some fractured parties within the sport that maybe yeah. detract from, uh, slightly detract from the overall direction. But I, I, I don't know if that's true because there's so much area for growth. I, I do think you could have three or four people, three or four groups running in slightly different directions and you're still covering new ground if that makes sense i i I don't i don't think it necessarily has to to be seen as gosh if we're all not in the same board meeting we can't grow the sport of rugby there's way too much country out there for that yeah and the way i look at that is you know you look at early 2000s and myspace and um Napster and then and Facebook and, and everybody was trying to figure out how social media was going to go. And it was a good thing that there were multiple people trying and failing to make that right. work. Right. And right. at some point, yes, there needs to be, you know, that aside in the sports side where you have to eventually have a national team that represents, you have to have a cornerstone event like a world cup that there there's got well, You got to coalesce at some point, but not necessarily a bad thing that a lot of entrepreneurs have been out there trying to figure out w- new ways to generate audiences, which as you know, is, is, is can be enormous challenge and you know, that, that takes time and effort. And so that's, that's probably a good thing. And now it's just coalescing all those best case practices of what has worked and what hasn't. Okay. Now let's, we got a 10 year plan into a world cup and then we got to, we got to have a 10 year plan after that, but all that has to be pretty aligned today. And I think that's the work that needs to happen now for sure. I, I agree. But, Look, growth is growth and, and growth in a sport like rugby doesn't happen without investment. And that's what you've seen, whether it's an investment of time from volunteers, whether it's investment of capital from people that are well healed, whether it's an investment from foreign parties, right? Whether it be the IRB, World Rugby, you know, you name it, New Zealand All Blacks committing to do things here. It Exactly. Private equity certainly doesn't hurt. That can make a lot of those things happen pretty quickly. It'll continue to be an investment vehicle for for how long? Who knows? You know, maybe that time is shorter than we think. Maybe it's a little longer than we think. But without question, I think it's obvious that some strides strides are being made. Yeah. So speaking of growth, you at USA Rugby, then you went to MLS, Major League Soccer? What was your role so at MLS, there? I was in charge of our international business, which had a couple different buckets. One, broadcast? Not, not as much media rights. There wasn't a touch of media rights. To be honest, the, the media rights worth, were not worth a ton at the time. So they didn't get a ton of attention. But, you know, it was, it was really a couple different things. One, it was leading our relations with the international soccer community. 
whether that was negotiating with Manchester United for a friendly, dealing with the Mexican national team, CONCACAF, U.S. soccer. I got to deploy a lot of those friendships and relationships from living in Europe for some time and, and, and be able to drive the business forward. And it was putting on events back in in the States with all those parties I just mentioned, and then some often playing against MLS teams. And so, you know, again, I go back to the, the time at USA Rugby was so special and it prepared me for that next tranche and ability for, I guess I was there eight years. And we really grew our, our events from, I'll call them matches, where people went and were engaged for two hours yeah. to proper events where people start getting engaged six weeks before. And they're engaged hopefully two weeks yeah. afterwards, whether that be through social media, whether it be through buying consumer products or, or you know, being, being a part of the movement. And, and that was really fun and, and got to kind of finish up with Copa America Centenario in 2016 and led the, the commercial efforts for that, which was a phenomenal, phenomenal chance to have a major, major tournament on the, on the shores here and, and drive it forward. So loved, loved my time at MLS, really, really smart people, good people there that are taking the, the sport of soccer to new heights every day. Right. That's fantastic. Was that under the SUM umbrella, the Psych Soccer United marketing umbrella? Was that under, how did, how did that, which part of the so business? So specifically it was some. However, right. I, I tell people that ask it, you know, you wouldn't know who worked for whom inside the walls. Right. I actually had business okay. cards for both. So yeah. Sometimes it made more sense when working with international folks to use a sum intermediary type, you know, obviously CONCACAF working with Major League Soccer just sounds a little different than in working with an agency. But there was no doubt we were all there to drive value for the owners of, of the sport and for Major League Soccer. Right. So you guys had Major League Soccer rights and events, but also U.S. soccer rights and events. Mexico, Mexico CONCACAF yeah. Gold Cup. Barcelona, you know, World Football Challenge, Chivas de Guadalajara, pretty much any any brand globally that had interest in the United States, we were able to position ourselves a, as a key option for them. Um, right, and that was was that before the Providence uh, Equity money came in? It was, was during that, that time, and then the, the sale came toward the end of that time, yeah. if I remember right. But yeah, it was yeah, yeah. like I said, it was a, a really interesting time starting in two thousand nine. And I, people ask me about USL all the time. I say, I feel like we're in 2008, 2009 in terms of USL inflection points as well. And, and we've got some ownership groups and clubs that are really talented and have a control uh, on their market from a fan standpoint, and, and they've built a business. And then we've got some that, that need some work and attention, but that's every league in the world, yeah. uh, every sport in the world. So yeah. We're no different, but we're, we're very, very well positioned for uh, a hockey stick type uh, growth here in the next three to five years. In terms of audience, monetization of the audience, in terms of valuations, what, what part, what, where, do you, where do you think that growth is going to come? I mean, because you guys have already had a pretty stellar growth. I mean, only, what, 10 years ago is a million dollar buy-in for a USL team and at least 12 million now that's a public number. I, I don't know what the private number is, but there's been that's a pretty significant yeah. growth. And you compare that to MLS, I guess, which has had you know you're Seattle and you bought in for whatever five million in the late early two thousands, and now you're looking at a you know, almost a billion dollar valuation. So that's that's pretty yeah, incredible. it's it's pretty incredible. I I think look what we focus on actually the order you said it audience number one 
then monetization second. And then lastly, the franchise value comes with the, the previous two. And it's almost an order that right. you follow. We can get very business oriented here, but I think at the end of the day, it comes back to the fans, right? And, and no matter what yeah. sport or what league you're in in the world, your value is derived by the number of fans that you have and, and the number of passionate fans. And so that is what we wake up thinking about is how to increase our scale and how to make the fans that we have right now more ardent supporters of their local club. How do we make them care more about watching away games on ESPN Plus versus just going to the home games? How do you give them opportunities to care more? Exactly. And we more. just finished a, a fantastic playoff run where we had some, some great matches. Our playoff attendance was up over 50% from the average regular season. And... And this probably resonates with MLR. There's, there were some clubs that as we met, uh, as all the playoff teams, that said, this is going to be challenging because I only know six days notice that I have a game or not, right? I, it's hard to, to sell right. um, that and take it to the community if I can't get my message out there early. But what we found is people care about games that matter. Our average ticket price up, yeah. was up almost 50% as well for that. So you're seeing sellouts, you're seeing people care about the games that matter most, that that's when you know you've really started to take hold of of a movement and of a fan. There's so many nuggets I want to dig into. Just just quick brief for our audience here, just summary of the USL, history of the USL. You know, I mean, partnerships have come and gone with MLS. USL is a professional soccer league. It's a set of leagues, actually, on the men's side and soon the women's side that we have, ultimately, at the end of the day, we have five different leagues, but we have about 40. And I say about because we've got some some fluctuation in and out or migration in and out. About 40 professional men's clubs. And right now about 30 professional, excuse me, amateur women's clubs. We're adding a women's professional division in 23. But but those those are those are clubs across the country. You know, from a, a global sanctioning standpoint, we are second division. So a lot of people like to refer to us and say, oh, it's it's similar to the championship in England or Syria B in Italy. And, and, and I just tell them yes and no, right? I, I don't think if you look at the markets we have in this country, we have 350 million people in the U.S. and Canada with more buying power than Europe. Why should the, the reach of soccer stop at 30 MLS clubs? Please don't go to San Diego, Phoenix, San Antonio, Indianapolis, or Tampa and tell those people that they're in a minor Tampa. league city. It won't go well. And so yeah. what we have kind of changed the narrative to on the men's side is let's just focus on being the best league that we can be. And so what should that be with those kind of markets and this kind of potential with soccer? We believe we can be a top 10 league in the world by 2030. That's regardless of division. So I, I, I fully That's believe awesome. that we're on track for that. And let me be clear for anyone that thinks there's there's some kind of challenging of, of MLS. There's not. I believe MLS is going to be a top three league in the world. And they are going to continue right. to grow. You will, you'll never hear me have a negative word to say about what they're doing or, or the acumen that they have there at the league office. But USL has that that opportunity to fill the map, right? And to fill the map with professional soccer clubs. I just mentioned a whole bunch of cities. And then we have a whole lot more, a level below that, places like where I'm from, Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
Hartford, Connecticut, right down the road from right. you, Providence. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah. you know, those cities of, of 700,000, a million, a million five, we have a different opportunity. We have the opportunity to be the professional club that represents the city. Because with all due respect to minor league baseball, which is in a lot of those cities, they're not, uh, fans aren't going to care if they win or lose because they're not their players. It's not their players. It's come and go. It's, it's about the experience. It's, it, and then it, they just exactly. And so <laughs> what we have the chance, whether you're in, again, Hartford, Providence, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, we have the chance to be the summer sport for a lot of these markets, right? And then the only sport yeah. that truly represents that city on a global and and is able to, and, and some of our owners are really starting to understand this dynamic that, you know, the Tampa Bay Rowdies, who just played in the final on ESPN last Sunday, yeah, and, and distributed globally, by the way, they should represent Tampa the same way Barcelona represents, you know, the city of Barcelona or Bayern Munich represents Munich. You know, sometimes people snicker, Alex, when I say that. But the truth is, we're only limiting ourselves if we don't have that goal. Because again, there, there's plenty of disposable income in the 3 million people in Tampa St. Pete to, to support a soccer team. And there's no reason why, I used to say this in Nashville all the time, we might be 125 years behind, but if we're aiming for anything less than global relevance and competition, we're, we're shooting too low. So the way I look at that from Major League Rugby's perspective is uh -huh. the cost by which, the player acquisition cost by which we can become a top five league, a top three league, the number one professional club league in the world, it's not nearly as big of a gap as you see in soccer, right? For MLS to close the gap on the premiership, that there's significant wealth that has to go into that equation. There's serious economy. And that's what, you know, I think that's one of the safety mechanisms for us in MLR is our cost to get there to be world, the world best is not nearly as expensive in the case of soccer. So how do you guys tackle that piece? Of yeah, that? I, I would say a, a couple of things in, in this, I'll, I'll answer it differently, but I think it's, it's a way to look at it. You guys at MLR, don't have to be as strong as England or South Africa or France out of the gate. You just have to be the best professional league in this hemisphere, right? And so, so once exactly. you're the, 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 the prominent America, really. league in this hemisphere, North and South America, in the Caribbean, Central America, then by virtue of time zones and by virtue of love of the sport globally, you're already, already going to be around the globe. Now there's degrees of relevance, right? But that's that's how we approach it. I, I approach it in soccer as I talk to our owners and people kind of trying to debate how much money do they invest and say, look, you're, you're playing in a global game here, right? You're competing against 100 professional leagues of, of, of significance around the country, but they would all die for the cities and the potential that we have, right? And, and the opportunity. And right. so if we can focus just being on the best in our cities, and, and delivering that brand proposition and delivering that fan experience, that work will will easily drop us in that top ten global conversation. And and you know, frankly, yeah. in this in this in this hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere, it will be MLS, it'll be Liga Mekis, and then USL. We're already probably uh, league in the hemis well in the in North America, Concacaf region by quality of play. And that's not my viewpoint, that's CONCACAF's viewpoint and, and people that I've spoken to there are coaches. So 
same with Major League Rugby. You'll you'll get great talent from all over the world who want to live in the United States and have that kind of lifestyle. And by virtue of that, you can quickly become relevant. So, so you you made a point there about a, a women's pro comp in USL. How is that coming to be? Is that part of what's happening in W? NWSL right now? Is this something totally separate or what's yeah, the, the vision there is actually there? the vision of our owners who about two, three years ago, many of them started coming to us and at the league office and saying, Hey, I, I would like to have a women's team. I would, I would like to make sure that I have balance in my organization. I'd like to make sure that my brand proposition to the local community is one of gender equity. And, but maybe the NWSL level investment isn't right for my market. You know, I, I have no clue if it's if it's five, eight, ten million dollars franchise fees, but that that's that's largely an investment in uh, the future and also right with the economics of, yeah. of of women's sports today. So, what we're focused on, number one, is being the most sustainable women's league that we can be, and two, delivering for our owners, and that and that includes an elite professional experience. And I'll give you a great example. If you're Colorado Springs, lots of the rugby community knows Colorado well from whether it's yeah. games in Glendale or, or you know, the, the Federation being there, the union being there back in the day. But if you're Colorado Springs, you've just built a beautiful 8,000 seat downtown stadium. Why would you not want to have double the amount of dates? And, and I don't know if Colorado Springs is going to have a, a W League team or a Super League team or whatever in, in the USL ecosystem. But it's just an example that, you know, the more or less... 800,000 people around that city can support more than just men's soccer, right? But it needs to be done thoughtfully, cost conscious, and ultimately one that that delivers in the long term. This isn't a short media uh, grab or anything. It's something that's got to build over a decade. How do you guys at the, at the top level, the league level, make sure there's, there is equality in that picture where you know, let's just say it was with Hartford Athletic. They've got a guys team. They're on X number of salaries. There's a women's team. They're at X divided by two salaries. How do you like, how do you make that work? Yeah, I, I think um, with all professional women's sports, they have to balance the equitable economics to the sustainability, right? And something we are focused on as a league is yeah. making sure that there is equal, I don't want to use the term pay, but let's just say equal compensation or equal opportunity. Right. But but one of the yeah. focal points and Amanda Vandervoort, our president, is 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 super smart. We got the chance to work at MLS for for some times. And we were talking the other day and and she made a fantastic point that, listen, there's there's 10 NWSL teams in this country, professional women's teams. There are 70 professional men's teams across MLS and USL, even if you count some some NISA teams as well. That's just that's just wonky out of the gate. Right. So. Yeah. Plus you have what? Exactly. So how do we help bring balance to that? Obviously our existing infrastructure of teams, stadiums, staff, right? Make that, make that very turnkey. And then how do you guarantee the quality? I think we guarantee the quality because we have options. That's what, that's what I found. So we have a W league option, which is an elite amateur option that will be a very strong league starting next year. We just announced yeah. yesterday, I think it was, that we're already over 30 teams. Probably will trickle up to 40 or so. But if you if you want to do more and you want to jump to the professional, there's, there's an investment jump, but you get more games, you get better players, all those kind of things. 
then you can jump to the Super League in, in 23 when that launches. So I, I think, you know, and if you don't want to do anything yet, you want to wait a year or two, that's your option as well. Do it when your market's ready, when you're ready versus, you know, we, we tell owners all the time, like, make the decision for today. Today, don't borrow the trouble tomorrow, right? If, if you need to wait and you're going to be better off as an organization when you open your stadium in two years, the stadium that you own and you're the landlord of, not not a tenant, wait, right? Build up to it and then and then launch all, all in. So, and I love that idea that you have options. How do you guys structure that? So USL, who owns USL? How's that? How's how's revenue shared between club owners? USL is is much more structured like global soccer and rugby leagues than domestic leagues. So the, the NFL, MLS, NBA, MLB, NHL are all closed leagues, right? With uh, a component of built-in revenue sharing, and, and every owner is a pro rata owner of the league, right? That that's not the case yeah. in I'm going to call it 95% of global sports where the league is, is an entity that manages the competition, monetizes the competition, guides the competition, but the investment that, that each club makes um, is up to them. And so we have a, it's a franchisee franchisor type situation. That's the, that's the business document. But the reality is if you're Louisville FC in, in USL and you want to go out and build a beautiful downtown stadium with, with 12,000, 15,000 um, capacity and turn it into an organization that, that, that has, you know, tens of millions of dollars of turnover a year and is really meaningful in their market. You can do that, right? If you want to be a little more cost prudent, you can do that. We don't have as many guardrails, but one thing that we did introduce a couple years ago, I was very happy to kind of author and work on with our fellow executives was a revenue sharing plan. So now USL shares revenue, 50% of all media and sponsorship revenue generated by the league flows back to the clubs. Okay. On an equal basis or how do you determine? Great question. It is determined a couple different ways, but there's two key principles. One, everyone gets a little something for being involved in the league, but the vast majority of it is is derived from rewarding clubs that are investing in their own space. But you can imagine, we we like to show full crowds. We like to show nice, shiny stadiums. We like to show teams that are very successful on the pitch. So the number of TV appearances is one mechanism. We have some, some business metrics with attendance. We have some things that we subsidize. All of our teams use an app that if you, you hop on this app and data warehouse, the league will subsidize. So it, it's, it's built so that yes, 50% flows back to the clubs, but we're trying to choose, excuse me, a few areas that can pull the league forward um, and pull clubs forward on an individual basis with that club dividend plan. And who owns the USL? Like who are the so the USL is a privately owned company from, this is public information, New Rock Holdings. We have a couple principal and minority owners okay that, you know, burden the losses in lean years and then get the rewards in positive years, right? But there's been, as any league or sport grows, there's been quite a few lean years to to get to the the point of sustainability and growth that we are now. So it's a long game for them and they're committed to soccer. So I own a team. I own Manchester, New Hampshire team. I pay a franchise fee per year. I also have a buy-in at the start if I get selected. That allows me to start at the lowest level, or can I buy in at the 
you know, the, the yeah, we, um, one or the yeah, championship we, we level? are negotiating franchises at all levels. So, you know, a great example down the road at Providence club that has been announced and the idea of, of building a soccer specific stadium yeah. at Tidewater Landing just outside of Providence, you know, they're going to come in at the okay. championship level because Providence and, and Rhode Island are, you know, a, a, a big city, right? They should compete in the championship against Hartford, against Pittsburgh, against Indianapolis, you name it, these type cities. And, and we want to give them that opportunity. Some other smaller markets will certainly come in at League Two or League One. But what I've found over the years, market size is less of a determinant of success than the leadership of the club. I think oftentimes people point to market size. All I have to do is is look at New Mexico United in our league, which has achieved fantastic success. I think they average close to 15,000 people a game in Albuquerque. Not, excuse me, TV statewide for every match that does really well. Millions of dollars of, of merchandise sold every year, but they're in one of our smallest markets. And, and But they had the right leadership from from uh, someone from Boston, actually, from from the Boston area, Peter Trevisani, to to take the club and bring something to the state that they had never had before. And that was a professional team to root for. Yeah. And then so primarily revenue sources, number one, ticket sales, mm -hmm. sponsorship, merchandise, you know, game day. And then that pushes media rights back to the league, which then filters back down Correct. to the franchisors. That's great. And how are you guys focused on helping all the teams move in that direction, increase attendance, increase sponsorship, which is tied to that effectively, merch, all that kind of stuff. How do you guys, you have 40 plus clubs on just the, the men's side. You're going to have 30 women. I mean, how, are you, how do you? Yeah, it's a good question. There's a couple of things we do. One is we have a very robust club services department. We have, I think, close to nine people right now. It's fluctuated a little bit during COVID, but we're, I believe, nine people led by our vice president, John Cochell, that, that work with all the clubs to make sure whether they're an expansion club or existing club, they're getting the best information and ideas that are, that are not only happening across USL, but happening across MLS or college football or the NFL or whatever, and make sure that we're sharing those uh, across the league. And, and then the other thing that we've instituted that, that comes from this department as well is we are very open with our clubs in terms of attendance and in terms of revenue. What we found is there's nothing that gets the competitive juices flowing, even on the business side, than seeing, you know, a table with 28 professional clubs in the championship and an owner, and, and an owner or a president saying, why am I 23rd in this? Yeah, no, we do it at the MLR. George, George Kilgrew yeah. introduced, you know, from his NBA days. Teambo, he's introduced Rambo. And so everything is measured. And it's fantastic. It's awesome. It's so good. It's so good for everybody. This is where we are on ticket sales. This is where we are on sponsorship. It's it's really healthy, actually, I think. And then but best case practices are shared. How are you, number one? Let's help, you know, let's help. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And then, you know, we have a, a monthly call with all of our presidents where ideas get exchanged, questions gets asked, information gets disseminated. And then twice a year, we have face-to-face -face meetings for two, three days. A massive event coming up, our Winter Summit in, in Tampa in a couple of weeks will be about 800 people across the USL ecosystem and, and partners like Puma, ESPN, XM Radio, you name it, will all be there for this, this kind of four-day convention of all things USL soccer, uh, which is a great time to interact and, and ask questions and learn from each other and just, you know, quite frankly, have a beer and, 
and, and celebrate surviving the last round of COVID. How do you guys data-wise, you mentioned the app, but how do you guys connect data-wise? How are the teams learning more about their... The league has invested in this space, again, through the app and data warehouse we have with, with Fan360 is one option. We also have a department that's our digital services department that helps the clubs understand and, and think of more ways to acquire data about their fans. And then I'll be honest, some of our clubs do this very well. One thing we haven't talked about is, is I think part of the rise of USL has been the fact that we have diverse ownership. So if you take San Antonio FC, one of our, our great clubs, they're also owned by the San Antonio Spurs. And so you can imagine that NBA influence and acumen is, is, is powerful. You know, our team in Phoenix also has teams in the championship in England. The Tampa Bay Rowdies are owned by the Tampa Bay Rays of Major League Baseball. So when you have those kind of crossover ownership groups and connections, you, you get a lot. You're able to, to, to quickly raise the, the talent pool and the acumen of your local organization by virtue of, of, of the bigger right. fish. And that, that's okay. We'll take that all day long. And by the way, MLS took it for a long time as well with NFL and MLS owners sharing resources. Yeah, it's one thing to build a ticket team from scratch. It's another thing to get the talent in who already has that experience, who can deliver on that. Yeah, that's it's uh, certainly lessons that we're learning as we go. Okay, rapid fire. Who is going to win the next Brazil. World Cup? Okay, when's USA and when's the US going to win a World Cup? Men. No. Too much pressure. Not when we host it in 26? We'll get we'll get to no. the quarterfinals or better. That's 11. But 2030. Okay. Uh, Rugby World Cup women, Rugby World Cup men. What does that do for the sport here in the U.S.? And what do we need to do? To you need a roadmap down? that all the stakeholders are at least aware of. And you need to make sure that you start early. We can I can say from a soccer perspective, we've not fully maximized the last four years since we've known that there would be a World Cup in this country. There's still plenty of time to grow on it and, and dive into it, but start early, make it a North Star for all the organizations that are involved in the sport. That's well said. What What are some examples of that? Uh, I, I think there, the there's ways that the professional leagues, the adult leagues, the youth leagues, the federation could have some metrics by which here's where we are in 2020, let's just say, and here's where we want to be in 2026. If that's participation, if that's attendance, if that's viewership, if that's social media, I think we all know it's out there, but I'm not sure that we've been completely aligned or at least knowledgeable of each other's efforts. But I'm hopeful that at the following the men's qualification for 2022, that can be something that, that we get behind very quickly with the Federation. Yeah. You know, and for us on, on the rugby side, it's like we have a champion, MLR championship, right? 2.2 million people watch it. We didn't even advertise really. Like it's just, I think we're just scratching the surface, but we're not, have yet to connect all the dots. And I think that's where Major League Rugby can certainly play a big part because we're investing, I mean, millions and millions of dollars in trying to make this work. I think having that, yeah, to the North Star, to a World Cup, two World Cups after the Olympics. I mean, how cool is that? So you've seen this from so many different angles, okay? My favorite and last question, you're sitting in my shoes with the Free Jacks. What are you focused on? Fan base, fan base, fan base. It's, it's scale. Uh, audience. It is scale. Attendance. And it, it's all, you know, we often in soccer, at least for a long time, I've used the fan funnel. You have, you know, entry fans, which might be a social media follower. 
or someone that's been one time or someone that's done, you know, rugby in their school. You've got casual fans that may tune in once or twice. You may come to one match a year. And then you've got Arden fans that are season ticket members, buy jerseys, all these kind of things. You have to grow each of the fan funnels and migrate people up. And that is, I, I get so many people, I, I talk to so many owners and leadership across all kinds of sports and organizations that they get sidetracked, Alex, on, you know, who's, what's our next t-shirt designer, this or that, or, you know, how do I get, you know, this next player? The, the fan has to be central to everything that you do and growing the scale of that fan has to be the number one job. Once, once you've done that, then it allows you to do more in all those other silos. So it's, it, it, it sounds like an obvious answer, but it's one that I see most organizations don't get right on a daily basis. Yeah, agreed. And I think we had some naivete at the beginning as we build the bath- bathtub, people are going to, the water's automatically going to be in it. You know, it's, it doesn't work like that. You need the whole infrastructure to get the water there. And then you got to figure out where the water's coming from as, as, a, as an analogy. And, I, and also naivete there, like, there's no such thing as a casual fan, you know, for the free jacks, you, you're either, you don't know it, or as soon as you know it, you're an ardent fan. And that's also, you know, an area that we, we need to continue to grow and understand that, no, there, there are multiple levels here that we need to get people further down because it's a great experience. Totally. It's life-changing if, if you want to be a part of it. Very cool. Thanks for listening. The latest episode of Full Contact CEO with Court Jeske. So many great nuggets in there for all of us to learn from, whether you're in sports entertainment, whether you're in rugby, whether you're in soccer, whether you're a student. Fantastic advice.